Your Money Replay from Money FM 89.3. Money and Me on Your Money, only on Money FM 89.3. Today is International Day for Older Persons. I have across me Shelley Hingarani, Head of Advocacy and Research at AWARE, and we're looking at the impact caregiving has on caregivers and asking what can be done to support their retirement adequacy. Happy International Day for Older Persons, Shelley. Hi, it's <laughs> wonderful to us. be here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled uh, to look closer at the uh, a report by AWARE. It's called Make Care Count, and it studies the financial toll that elder care takes on family caregivers. So I understand that AWARE is looking at retirement readiness of family caregivers of older persons. First of all, help us understand what that term means. So retirement adequacy essentially speaks to the amount of money that you need to lead a comfortable post-retirement life. Um, in our study, we have operationalized this term as four financial factors. One is employment. So uh, how long do you need to be employed and what kind of income do you need to continue making in order to be ready for your retirement. Income is the second factor. The third factor is expenses because you're essentially looking at a balance sheet. You're looking at the kind of money that is coming in through employment and the issues that you're spending money on. So expenses is the third factor. Another factor is wealth. um, And this sometimes includes family transfers as well. A number of studies have been done on retirement adequacy all around the world. And they essentially try and calculate a ratio of post-retirement income, the kind of income that you will require once you have retired to lead the same kind of comfortable life you led pre-retirement when you were a productive member of society. What happens in Singapore typically when someone becomes a caregiver? That is the heart of why this research was carried out. Absolutely. So we wanted to understand, uh, really understand in depth the experiences of caregivers and how caregiving itself impacts these four financial factors that I mentioned. Now, all of us are human beings. We have 24 hours in a day. We have finite time. Uh, Some of us are able to devote ourselves to work. Uh, At other times, we have family caregiving responsibilities that we need to balance with our work responsibilities. So we were interested in what this balancing act looks like for caregivers and found that there are several aspects of caregiving that make it incompatible with work, with the kind of work that our caregivers are eligible for. Now, to give you an example, a number of caregivers was mentioned to us that it was really important to them that Mm. their work was flexible because they couldn't predict when their care recipients, and they were typically parents in, in the case of our study, would fall ill. Right. And once they did fall ill, uh, the caregivers had to be on call. And these are not conditions that you can predict in any way. So they wanted the workplace to be more understanding of their caregiving responsibilities. Mm. And they wanted them to have flexibility so that they could easily manage work and caregiving responsibilities. Without this flexibility, what would happen is that you would allow caregiving to interfere with work. So you may not be as productive because you're constantly thinking about your parent who has just had a fall. 
it would also have the opposite effect of work interfering with caregiving responsibilities. So when you're caring for your parents, let's say you're talking to them, they're feeling really emotional because they suffer from a terminal disease. And all you can think about is the important presentation that you have to make tomorrow. So how can we support working caregivers in such a way that they can fulfill their work and caregiver roles properly and honestly? So for the the caregiver who's still employed, you're asking for six days paid elder care leave, you are suggesting, and the statutory right to flexible work arrangements. So you want to move the flexibility from, I suppose, a goodwill of employers and an understanding employer to legislation. That's exactly right. Uh, we want to make sure that every single employee in Singapore has the right to request flexible work arrangements and that employers can only give business-related reasons to turn down these requests. And what that is going to do, as you rightly pointed out, is eliminate the subjectivity uh, involved in making a decision about whether or not somebody should get flexible work arrangements. We've looked at a number of different um, policy designs. Um, New Zealand, Australia, UK all have uh, specific legislations on flexible work arrangements that will tell you how many times in a year you can request for a change in flexible work arrangements. And this is important because at the start of the year, you may require one type of flexibility, which may change as the health condition of your care recipient changes. So you should be able to ask for changes in the way you work multiple times during the year. Um, We're also interested in sort of changing work cultures. And we think that if employees have the right to request, that is going to give a serious signal to all the managers, middle managers, to the top management, to HR, to consider this as part of the benefits they give their employees. So it's no longer about whether or not uh, the caregivers' bosses believe that they're doing good work when they're working from home. It becomes a right that is available to all employees. Now, that's what you're asking for the caregiver who is employed. And then there are a group of caregivers and some of us, you know, may be in that group, may know someone in that group who's had to completely give up work in order to take care of a disabled member of the family or uh, a person who needs help at home to age at home and not in a community hospital or anywhere else. And if caregiving had a face, that face would be female, wouldn't it? Some might ask, you know, this report make care count. Why does it focus on women as caregivers? What do you say to that? Right. Um, I'm really glad that you asked this question because a lot of feedback that we have received has indeed raised this question about male caregivers. And I just want to clarify that our report is in no way uh, discounting the experiences, the unique experiences of male caregivers. But we based our study on the last known quantitative study on family caregiving in Singapore, which found that 60% of all family caregivers are women. We also know that caregiving and aging will impact women differently than men. We know women live longer. We know they spend more years in disability. They are likely to outlive their partners if they have partners. All these factors, we think, need to be considered when talking about how caregiving affects men and women. Um, In our research, we found 
because we were looking for people who were providing co-residential care. So they were living in with their parents while providing care, right? I mean, there are lots of other forms of caregiving, but this was the form that we were interested in. Mm -hmm. And we found that care was typically provided by unmarried single daughters. Um, And we were not surprised by this finding because we know that caregiving is typically a woman's job. Uh, But what we were surprised by was the fact that all these caregivers had siblings. And so we were interested to find out how it was that our respondents were assigned caregiving responsibilities and not one of their other siblings. And many of them said that it was because of their gender, because of their unmarried status, that they were asked to be the primary family caregivers and not their siblings who were married with kids. One of them, in fact, said to us, um, I was told that I don't have as many claims on my time, as many claims on the income that I am making. So I am better situated to provide care to our parents and not my siblings. But we think this might be a short-sighted way of thinking about care arrangements because unmarried daughters of elderly parents will become elderly in 10, 20 years time and they will not have a next generation of caregivers to care for them. We've often heard the government promote aging in place, right? It, which is which is a concept that allows older persons more freedom because they're able to age in the comfort of their home. They're able to live independently. But this aging in place is enabled by family caregivers because unless you have a family caregiver, you're not able to be cared for at home. The sad irony of our findings is the fact that the very people who enabled aging in place for the parents, the elderly parents of today, will not be able to reap the benefits of this policy because they don't have daughters, they don't have sons to care for them in their old age. So they're likely to age in institutional facilities. So what is going to happen to this group of single unmarried women who by far and large are the bulk of the caregivers? AWARE is asking for comprehensive regulation, a host of recommendations, a comprehensive regulation and licensing of private providers of elder care services, modifications to Singapore's Care Shield Life long-term insurance scheme. But I want to focus on um, a grant um, that AWARE think a cash grant. So there are two components to it, CPF contributions mm-hmm. and a cash grant for caregivers. Can you explain how this is going to help with retirement adequacy for this group of, of women that we're talking about? Right. So the recommendation um, is to introduce a caregiver support grant. It has two specific components, like you said. It has a cash component, which we believe will help offset some care-related expenses. As part of our report, we found that caregivers were spending about 37% of their monthly household income on care-related expenses after taking into account subsidies. We think that we can offset some of these expenses through this caregiving support grant. Um, the CPF contributions is targeted specifically at those who may not be working at the same level they were able to before they became caregivers. Now, to give you an example of this, mm-hmm. we typically think of caregivers as people who have completely withdrawn from the labor force, who are not able to balance work and caregiving responsibilities at all. But that's not the entire picture. We have interviewed several caregivers who reduced the number of working 
working hours they spent. Uh, so instead of quitting altogether, they went from being a full-time employee to being a part-time employee, which still has a significant cost on the amount of money you're making. It has a cost in terms of the CPF contributions you're receiving from your employer. And we think that our recommendations, the support that we provide to caregivers, should ideally support the entire range of caregivers as far as their working arrangements are concerned, right? So they should support people who are able to continue working. It should support people who've had to withdraw completely, as well as people who've made other kinds of work arrangements that put them at an economic disadvantage because of their caregiving responsibilities. The CPF contributions, because CPF is the major way in which we all build retirement adequacy, Mm. uh, we think that women and men who are providing care should not lose out on these contributions as a result of their caregiving. We want caregiving to be recognized as the important work that it is, where nobody is suggesting that caregiving does not have basis in filial piety. Of course it does. Of course we all want to care for our parents, but we also want to care for ourselves in our old age. So it's important for us that while we fulfill these family obligations, we don't lose out on our retirement savings and the grant is going to help make that possible. So are you suggesting CPF contributions for people who have left the workforce for caregiving? Exactly. Be contributed the same way an employer would be contributing to your yes. CPF yes. if you were working based on your last drawn salary. Right. Why is there a need for um, a cash grant when 2019 it was announced that there's a home caregiving grant? This replaces the foreign domestic worker grant. The home caregiving grant is at $200, right? It's a $200 and applications for the grant um, are opening very soon. Um The reason we decided to make a separate recommendation, knowing that the government was going to introduce a home caregiving grant, was because the home caregiving grant is tied to the care recipient and not to the caregiver. The care recipient, the elderly parent who receives this grant, can nominate the grant to go to a caregiver or to another one of their children. So the grant itself does not guarantee that the caregiver's retirement adequacy is not going to be compromised. It will definitely help. It will help with out-of-pocket care-related expenses, so foreign domestic worker salaries and so on and so forth. But it's not going to help caregivers build up their retirement savings, which is why we think that retirement savings as a question needs to be tackled separately. And we're suggesting the caregivers support grant for that particular issue. We're taking a closer look at the financial toll elder care takes on caregivers and how we can better support their retirement adequacy with Shelley Hingarani, Head of Advocacy and Research from AWARE. Um, I, I noted that you had Dr. Rahul Malhotra, Assistant Professor, Head of Research at the Centre for Aging Research and Education, Duke NUS Medical School at the launch of this report. And he said, um, you know, the information that we have about the impact of the amount of money that is spent by family caregivers is quite lacking. Data is obviously a really, really important um, point and a really important piece of the puzzle. As we try and figure out what the best way to support caregivers might be, mm-hmm. our starting point must be how many caregivers there are in Singapore. What kinds of care arrangements are they in? We must also collect information on the employment impact that caregiving has on caregivers. Um, unfortunately, the last big quantitative survey on family caregiving was done in 2011. We know Singaporeans 
society has aged since then. We know that some of the caregiving numbers have changed since then. I think it's imperative for all of us to have more up-to-date information so that when we are talking about prevalence, when we are talking about how common certain experiences are, we have nationally representative data available for that. As a nonprofit organization, we don't have the financial resources to conduct large-scale quantitative surveys, which is why our preferred research methodology tends to be qualitative. So that's one. We have information, but it's from 2011. We need information on what kinds of work accommodations caregivers are making. The Labor Force Survey of 2018 does have data on the number of caregivers who are outside the labor force because of caregiving responsibilities to relatives and families. Mm -hmm. And for women, this number stands at 75,800. What we don't have information on is the number of caregivers who've had to go from full-time to part-time work, the number of caregivers who've had to go from full-time work to becoming self-employed, because our research finds that caregivers are actually making all sorts of different adjustments. Um, And it would be good to get this data so that we can specifically target our work-related policies to the kinds of accommodations that caregivers are making. So your latest research, Make Care Count, does shed light on the income loss of uh, respondents who have experienced some change in their work situation. Is that a 63% loss in income? It is a 63% loss in income. And we take into account people who've made the kinds of work accommodations I was talking about earlier, right? So people who have gone from full-time to part-time work, people who started out as being self-employed before they became caregivers to them perhaps continuing as self-employed persons, but not being able to take on as many clients. Um, as they previously could. So it takes into account all those kinds of work arrangements to calculate this average figure. Of course, we have to remember that our research was based on 22 interviews, right? We did put out a call to recruit respondents. So our sample was not biased in any way. We were not only looking for people who had experienced a negative change. And in fact, there were three people in our respondent pool who did not experience any change in employment. And when we came came across these three transcripts, we were all so happy because we thought that they had managed to sort of figure this puzzle out, right? They had managed to balance work and caregiving responsibilities. Mm. And what we discovered was that they were caring for people with less than three ADLs, activities of daily living. An example of these activities would be helping an older person eat or helping them transfer from their bed to the toilet. And that is significant because it's speaks to a caregiver's um, the amount of time that they have to spend providing care, uh, which is sometimes known as care intensity. We also realized that these three individuals who did not experience any change were not caring for someone with dementia, which creates another set of complications, which requires caregivers to have even more flexibility at work because they're caring for people who often tend to have behavioral problems. They tend to be temperamental. We also discovered that they were in the kinds of jobs that actually provided flexibility. So they were able to balance work and caregiving responsibilities better. 
And, you know, when we talk about grants or any sort of financial support for retirement adequacy, we also need to understand the amount of outlay uh, that a person would have to, a caregiver has to make for to properly take care of someone with three ADLs or more. Or, you know, there's a huge variation given the type of disability or the amount of care needed. But you did shed light on um, the amount that caregiving women taking care of someone with fewer than three ADLs, so activities of daily living, and that's 866 a month. But again, there's huge variation there, right? Yes, absolutely. There's huge variation there. And we were interested in uh, making this distinction between people who are caring for um, care recipients who require help with less than three ADLs and more than three ADLs, because it's understandable that if you're caring for someone with a permanent sort of severe disability, you will have to spend more money. But what we often forget is that even if you're caring for someone who is not severely disabled, you're still spending a lot of money out of pocket. And that is ultimately affecting your retirement adequacy. So um, when we think about subsidies, when we think about grants, we notice that the cutoff is often three ADLs or more. Uh, what this report is trying to say is that the financial cost of caregiving for those caring for people with less than three ADLs is also high. It's not as high as people who are caring for... But some with $866 is significant. Yeah, exactly. For most people. Exactly. Well, thank you so much for coming by and helping us understand the report Make Care Count, Sheila. Thank you. That's Shelley Hingarani, Head of Advocacy and Research for AWARE. The government schemes that offset the cost of caregiving, in case you're interested, are Care Shield Life. There's Medisave Withdrawals for Long-Term Care, announced in 2019, the Home Caregiving Grant, and the Elder Fund as well. Again, you can read more of AWARE's report at their website, and the title of that report is Make Care Count. Before acting on the information on Money FM. Please consider if it's suitable for your own investment objectives, financial situation, and risk tolerance. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at moneyfm893.sg or download the SPH Radio app available on Google Play or the App Store.